0: Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. This evening's reading is taken from Acts chapter 2 verses 22 to 47. This can be found on page 1093 in the Church Bibles. That is Acts 2 22 to 47, 1093. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him. As you yourself know, This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken, therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your holy ones see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence." nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, And he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptised and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. The fellowship of the believers. They devoted themselves to the apostles, teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Why is there a Bible up here? <laughs> Good evening, everyone. It's lovely to see you. Um, we are speaking from God's Word. Don't worry. I just need my notes rather than this one in front of me. <laughs> it's lovely to see you all. Um, thank you for reading. Um, if we haven't met and you are visiting, my name's Justin, as Johnny said. Um, I'm the Minister for Students here. I have the joy of serving um, the students who are here at Forward in, uh, in the Gospel. Um, And if it is your first time and you are a student, let me invite you over to the church center after the service where we'll have pizza together, and it's on us, so do come and join. Um, Do keep your Bibles open there. Um, And let's quieten our hearts now as we come before the Lord in prayer. Psalm 112, verse 6 and 7 says, Surely the righteous will never be shaken. Their hearts are steadfast, trusting in the Lord. Father in heaven, thank you that your Son, our Lord, Jesus Christ, has been raised to life, is exalted and ruling from your throne. Now please help us by your Spirit to see his glory, that we return to him in faith And please would you help me to preach your word this evening by your Spirit's enabling. In Christ's name we ask, and for his glory. Amen. You have a king, and his name is Charles. How many of you thought I was going to say Jesus? (laughs) It was a privilege, wasn't it, to see the coronation of King Charles III in our lifetime, Though, given the expense of it, we hope that we might not see another one too soon. The coronation has happened. And maybe you've wondered, since the coronation, what is King Charles going to do? What is he going to do that's going to show the kind of king that he is, the kind of kingdom that he rules over? How is he going to put his mark in history? And i tried to find this out for myself, and one article that I read said, the job of monarch today may be formulaic, indeed near robotic. Is that all, we're to expect from King Charles that as he makes his mark as king, it's going to be done with archaic custom. You could argue that those form- uh, formalities and f- um, formulations, while well, they actually cement his rule in the history of British monarchy but will any of it be relevant to the UK today? What kind of king is Charles? And what kind of kingdom does he rule over? And as you sit here and you listen to these questions that I'm asking, you might find some resonance with Christianity, whether you're a Christian or not. Because one of the main claims of Christianity is that Jesus is the king of all people we've been singing it tonight repeatedly. This past week as, Je- as Johnny mentioned we remembered the ascension of Jesus it was when he was coronated as the king of God's kingdom and he didn't sit on some old wooden throne in Westminster no he ascended to the right hand of God and sat down on his throne That's what we're told in verse 33 of our passage. He was exalted to the right hand of God. And this happened already in the beginning of Acts, in Acts chapter 1, verse 9. But as we look at the world around us, that so many have no interest in him, the state of the church, even the bishops are turning from his word, or even the state of our own lives, we might wonder, Is He risen? Is He ruling? Is He active? What is He doing? Is He relevant? Now, no one might know that you're asking yourselves these questions and that you're turning them over in your mind. But it will begin to show in some way. Because maybe you've begun just to drift away from meeting regularly with God's people. Or you find yourself a bit more infrequent gathering together like this to sit and hear from his word. And so the thought of telling someone else that Jesus is king is one that hasn't even crossed your mind this week because you're wrestling that through for yourself. These questions, they cut to the heart of why Luke in fact wrote this letter. One of the first disciples, Theophilus, that he mentions in chapter 1, that he wrote this letter to, would have been asking questions like this, is Jesus alive? Is he the king who's ruling? Is he the king of Israel, whom God is working through to bring about his purposes and his kingdom? And is he relevant to me, a Gentile? And What does his rule look like now? Well, Luke has written about this so we would be assured. He wants us to be assured that Jesus is Lord and Messiah who is saving God's people and restoring his kingdom. And it's my hope and my prayer that this is what we would leave with tonight and that we would see tonight that we would be assured that Jesus is Lord and Messiah who is saving God's people and restoring God's kingdom. He is alive. He is ruling, and he is relevant to every single one of us. And so we're going to look at this passage under three headings. Firstly, that Jesus is Lord and Christ, in verse 22 to 36. Secondly, Jesus is saving God's people now, verse 37 to 41. And thirdly, Jesus is restoring God's kingdom, verse 42 to 47. Let's see, firstly, that Jesus is Lord and Messiah. This is the conclusion of Peter's sermon in verse 36. He says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, Lord and Messiah. Last week we saw at Pentecost that the coming of the Holy Spirit was something that God was doing. In chapter 2, verse 19, God says, I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below. The signs and wonders are miraculous things that only God can do. Miracles. And his work is particularly focused in the person of his Son, through whom he performed signs and wonders. The man, Jesus of Nazareth, we're told in verse 22, was a man accredited to you by God by Miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Jesus is the man who was sent from God to do God's work. And the signs and the wonders that Jesus did, nobody could deny that they were true, that they happened. But it is his resurrection. And the sending of the Spirit at Pentecost that are the sign that God was, in fact, at work through him. And they show that he is God's man, achieving God's purposes. So, in verse 22 to 32, we see that Jesus is Messiah because God raised him from the dead. Jesus is the Messiah because God raised him from the dead. And to say that Jesus is the Messiah or the Christ means that he descended from the line of King David, the king of Israel. God had appointed Jesus to rule over his kingdom forever. We read in verse 30 that God had promised him, that is David, on earth that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. And God had made this promise to King David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7 Verse 12 and 13, God said to him there, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God's plan since rescuing his people out of um, Egypt was to have a kingdom of people who would know him and worship him. This is what God said to the nation of Israel in Exodus 19, verse 6. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But this kingdom wasn't realized throughout Israel's history. Their kings led them into idolatry to worship other gods. And when they did have a good king, they weren't good enough. And eventually they died. Well, Peter quotes from Psalm 16 here in verses 25 to 28. It's a psalm that David wrote about not staying dead. And Peter's point is that Jesus, well, it's about him. We are to see that he is the one who is from God. He is the Davidic king whom God has raised to rule forever. And that is because David couldn't have written it about himself. You see, David died. And he stayed dead. And his tomb was in Jerusalem, and you could go and see it. It was about the resurrection of the Messiah. You see, Jesus had died. They all knew it. They were there. They'd asked for him to be executed. But he rose. It was promised back in Psalm 16 in 2 Samuel 7. And it was also witnessed by Jesus' apostles, verse 32. And you see, the certainty of Jesus' resurrection is not just based on the scriptures alone, on the Old Testament alone, and the promises that God made there alone. Nor is it based on the eyewitnesses alone. The certainty of it is when those two things correspond. And the certainty we have is because God promised it and they saw it. A past present and a present a past promise and a present fact mean that we can be certain that Jesus was raised to life. And it was impossible therefore for death to hold him. It was impossible for him to stay in the grave. Can you imagine God and the grim reaper having a tug of war. Well, who's going to win? God every time. God every time. The infinite God, our creator, the one who is light and life. Well, death can't hold him. Death is not stronger than him. And so it was not improbable that Jesus rose. It was not improbable that Jesus rose. It was impossible that he stayed dead. We can be sure that Jesus is the Messiah because God raised him from the dead. And we can be certain that he is Lord because he sent the Spirit at Pentecost. This is what Peter goes on to explain in verse 33 to 36. The Lord is the name of God in the Old Testament. The Lord, Yahweh. Jesus was raised to be king of God's kingdom, and now he rules with all of God's authority. We're told in verse 33 that having been raised to life, therefore he was exalted to the right hand of God. And his equality with God is demonstrated in that he does what God does. In verse 17, The quote from Joel chapter 2, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. And in verse 33, Peter says, He, that is Jesus, has poured out what you now see and hear. And Peter shows from Psalm 110 that the Messiah was promised to rule with all of God's authority. See, in the Psalm, David acknowledges that the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, said to his Lord... That's David's Lord, his superior, Adonai in the Hebrew, that he would be the one who would sit at God's right hand. Again, it's, David is elaborating and reflecting on what God had promised him in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that there would be this one who is his superior, whom God would put on his own throne. Jesus is the Messiah. He was raised. He was raised to rule, and therefore he is Lord. He rules with all of God's authority, being God Himself, and He sent God's Spirit at Pentecost. When Jesus became king, He ascended into heaven. But when he was there, it, it's not likely that he was met with some palace official who sat him down and told him, now King Jesus, these are all the rites and ceremonies that you have to adhere to and these are the things that you're going to have to do in the next few weeks according to these standards and rules and let me get out this big book and show you about all the practices that you have to understand, all these nice, relevant and formal meetings you must go to. No. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he took charge. He's in control. He is the one who rules history. Even as we saw this morning in Revelation, he is the one who is fully in control because he is God Himself. I love visiting people and seeing those um, photo collages in people's homes. It's a mishmash of pictures of particular times in their lives. And they tell a story together. They tell a family story. And here, in the book of Acts, Luke is giving us one of those family collages. His point in this passage is that it's like a Kodak moment of the early church. And the really big thing that we're to see is that After Jesus ascended to the throne of God, he poured out God's Spirit. He sits here to show us the kind of king Jesus is and the kind of kingdom that he rules over. If you're here this evening and you're not a Christian, you need to be sure and certain that Jesus was not just a man, he is God's man, and God was at work through him, and he was through him achieving his purposes. He acted and he spoke in the public sphere, and the corroboration of the Old Testament and the eyewitnesses mean that we must take he, who he is and what he has done seriously. We can't just neglect what is being claimed about him in this passage. He is not just a man, nor is he just a godly man, but he was God who was among us and is now alive and has all authority. Brothers and sisters, as Christians, here we see the heart of the gospel. It's about Jesus and who he is. And what he has come to do. He is the one who, as we will go on to see, is building God's kingdom. He is the one who is saving God's people. We can be sure of it. And in this passage that we have here in Peter's sermon, we really do see the benchmark of what it means to believe the gospel. What is the gospel that we are believing? What is the gospel that we are sharing? Well, it is this, that Jesus is Lord and Messiah. And we can be sure of it. And so, in our CUs, at our work, as a church, what are we about and what is central? I know that it is the Lord and that he is King. I've been able to see that among us, but we do need to come back to this passage and be assured and remember and ask ourselves again, what are we about? Jesus is Lord and Messiah and the significance of this is that Jesus is saving God's people now. Verse 37 to 41. Jesus' divine and kingly act of sending His Spirit at Pentecost to His apostles is so that they would be witnesses to His death on the cross and His resurrection. And this shows us that now is the time to be saved. Now is the time to be saved. See, we're told in verse 17 and verse 20 to 21 that in the last days God says, I will pour out my Spirit. And then verse 20, before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. See, in sending the Spirit, God is kind of sharing with us, in a way, it's like He's sharing with us His iCal or His Google Calendar. It's a mark in time that we must take seriously. And what's important about this time now is that it's a time of salvation before judgment comes. And judgment day isn't some sci-fi era that we're in where we're expecting AI to take over and eliminate human- uh, humanity. It's a day when we see, as it say, says in Acts chapter, 11, uh, chapter 1, verse 11, that Jesus will return. And he will return as our king, and our judge, the judge of every single person. And that is a problem, especially if you are the one who's nailed him to a cross, as they had done here. They had rejected their king. They had rejected their Lord. They did not take him seriously and they thought he was irrelevant. And that is why, once the people heard that Jesus is their God and their king, whom they killed, they asked in verse 37, what shall we do? What shall we do? What do you do? My friend, let me stop here and and ask, if you're not a Christian, can I say to you, see the weight of who Jesus is. See the seriousness of the times that we're in. But also see his kindness and see his love and see his grace. Because the very fact that we are here this evening, hearing this gospel about this king, well, it's because of his love and his grace to us. That he he has made it possible that we can hear of his kindness and his grace and his salvation. And so that we would come to know him. And be saved. Now is the time to be saved. But who are the people that Jesus saves? Who are the people that he saves? What kind of salvation do we need? Well, it's people who reject him. In verse 23 it says that even though they knew he was from God and he was doing God's work, they, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. And in verse 37, God has sorry, verse 36, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Jesus is speaking to the Jewish people of his day. And their rejection of Jesus by nailing him to the cross is really the culmination of their ongoing rejection of God throughout the Old Testament. You see, they rejected him by worshipping other gods, by not listening to his word, by not living according to his moral standards and loving their neighbours in the way that he had called them to do. We weren't there that day when Jesus was nailed to the cross. We weren't part of the crowd that called for Jesus to be killed. But their rejection of him as a nation As the people of God, what shows us what all of us are like? If it was true of them, it is true of us. Isn't it? Isn't it true that in a week, at some point in our life, even this week, we don't give a thought to Jesus? We don't have a single care for him or who he is or what he says, what it means to live for him, we don't take seriously often that he is Lord and King. We would have done exactly the same as them. And we are all, as it says in verse 35, his enemies. But he is not our enemy. He is not our enemy. No, he is the Lord and Messiah who loves us and who saves his enemies. And he saves anyone from any and every language who we are told in verse 41, accept his message. And what is that message? It is that he, Jesus, our God, saves us. He is the one who saves. The irony is that they ask, what must we do? But there is nothing they can do. What do you do? What do you say when you realize that you've killed God? What do you say? When you've killed the one who has all of God's power, all of God's authority, and you put him on a cross, what do you say to that? Do you really think you can do anything or save yourself? See, in verse 40, it says, save yourselves. Peter says that to the crowd. But a better translation of those words is, be saved. It's passive. It's not something we can do, but it's something Jesus has to do for us. He's saying to them, be saved by Jesus. And notice in verse 21, it it says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Peter pairs that with verse 39. The promise of the Spirit is for all whom the Lord our God will call. He must save us. And the salvation we need in verse 38 well, it comes from Him. And it's the forgiveness of our sins and the gift of His Holy Spirit. It's to be give, forgiven for being His enemy to be washed clean from all the ways that we've wronged him and wronged others and it's to be given new life by him so that we could live in a way that pleases him as our king. And we have the forgiveness of sins and we have the gift of the Holy Spirit in his name. It's a phrase that was used in commercial ways back then. It's like saying, I had my kitchen done by Joe and Sons. We can have forgiveness of sins and a new life by the Spirit because God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are at work to save us. And this was done when Jesus died on the cross and when he rose to life to prove that our sins are dealt with. What do you say? what do you say to this? What do you say to this king who died for you, who rose to save you? What does it call, mean to call on Jesus to be saved? It means to, well, it looks like repentance and baptism. It means to acknowledge that we've rejected him and that we are his enemies. It means that we are to turn to him, to trust in him, to rely on his death on the cross for us and his resurrection to save us. And to be baptized means to publicly acknowledge all that Jesus has done to save us, trusting in him for new life. And that's what a number of you are going to be doing on the 4th of June. What a wonderful thing. See, this passage is a bit of, it's a bit like a comeback scene in a movie. You can imagine that um, the bad guys, they've, they've killed, or they think they have. They've killed Spider-Man or Batman or Indiana Jones. Um, I heard that they're going to try and re- revive the Indiana jo- Jones movies. Um, that's a, an improbable resurrection. But yet yeah, Jesus comes back. And we are his enemies. And how does he treat us? How does he win, o- win over us? Well, it's through love and grace and a chance to be in his kingdom and live for him. So we're to be sure, Jesus is saving people now. We can become part of all that God is doing in this world. And if you're not a Christian, you need to see that the the fact that anyone would be a Christian and put their trust in Jesus is, in fact, God's work. It is proof that God is at work. And it is proof that Jesus is raised and he is ruling. For those of us who are Christians, we're given this picture to see that Jesus is alive. He is the king. You might be doubting that. You might have doubted that this week. He is the one who is bringing about his kingdom. And as people turn to him and put their trust in him, it is proof that he will do it. And when we see and hear the gospel being preached and people coming to turn to him, well, we know that he is at work. Pentecost was God's declaration that the risen Jesus is ruling. But it's not just a one off event. Jesus is restoring God's kingdom, and this is our last point. Jesus is restoring God's kingdom. See, what happened at Pentecost was not some odd religious occurrence that happened and had no traction in life after that. We would have a very different understanding of what happened in verse 42 to 47 if we were given there a picture of Peter and the gang, hanging out by the lake with a beer in hand, holding their nets in the other, waiting for the tide to come in. Wouldn't we? The story would read very differently if that was the case. But what we see here is that the risen and ruling Jesus continues to rule his church and is restoring God's kingdom now because Jesus continues his work by his spirit through the apostles. We read in verse 30, 43 that everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And we're to understand by that phrase that God was at work in his church through his Son, Jesus, Lord and Messiah, in the power of his Spirit, as the apostles were bearing witness to Jesus. And what Jesus brings about is the restoration of Israel. God's purposes for Israel, His people, was that there would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. There were to be a community who knew their God, who were gathered around His words, were welcoming to one another and showed love and generosity and resulted in the nations coming in and joining and being part of God's kingdom. But that wasn't realized in the Old Testament, in Malachi. God says of Israel in chapter 3, verse 14, he's quoting Israel as saying, it is futile to serve God. This is what they concluded at the end of their history. It's futile. But God had promised in Ezekiel 36 that the coming of his spirit would be when he would restore his kingdom because he would enable his people to love and follow him. Let me read Two verses from Ezekiel 36. There God said, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. These verses in Acts 2 show us that the restoration of God's kingdom is realized by Jesus Now, it's realized by Jesus now. So we, hear, we see here Jewish people living according to God's plan to have a kingdom of priests and a holy nation now centered all on Jesus, brought about by him. See, the they in verse 42 is those who accepted Peter's message, the message that Jesus had called and enabled his apostles to witness to, that he is Lord and Messiah. They'd been rescued to live under God's King, and they'd been given His Spirit to enable them to love their Lord and King and one another. And they gathered around God's Word about His Son. It's His Word in the Old Testament, witnessed to them by the apostles. It's about Jesus. They lived as a community. Where they show generosity and love, welcome and accepting one another. They worship God. They worship Jesus. They win the favor of those around them. And it means their ordinary lives of worshiping the Lord, worshiping His Son, loving one another made it undeniable that Jesus is alive. It was the undeniable proof that Jesus is alive. And so more people were drawn into the kingdom as they were saved by Jesus and in his name. How can we know that Jesus is risen and ruling today? Well, when we look at these verses, it looks quite ordinary, doesn't it? But it's also really sublime. It's divine. You see, if you're visiting with us and if you decide to come again, which I hope you do and encourage you to do, you won't find anything extraordinary here in one sense. But what you will see is a people who are committed to God's Word. They're committed to His Son. They're committed to one another in love. And they serve one another. And they look to tell others about King Jesus and that He can save us. You see, in many ways... It's otherworldly to be here. And if you spend time here, you will see that Jesus is king. You will see it. Because he rules here. And brother and sister, if you're doubting, if you're doubting that Jesus is risen, that he is ruling, perhaps because of your own failures or because of the failures of God's people, Don't drift. Don't drift. Because where you see these marks that we have here in, chapter, in verse 42 to 47 of what a church that is ruled by Jesus looks like, well, you will find that here. Don't drift from God's people, don't drift from meeting under His Word. See, it's not a perfect church, but it is His church. And there is restoration. So keep coming and stay committed to his word and his people. And here is the benchmark for us as a church. It's here that we can see what it means to be a part of God's people who are living under Jesus' rule. And so let me just finish off by encouraging our students and even our youth who are going off to study in different places or work in different places after the summer. What is the church that you want to be part of? Well, it's one that looks like this. Because there, Jesus is king. Be assured, Jesus is on his throne. He is saving his people and he's restoring God's kingdom. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are risen and ruling and we ask and pray that you would please give us strength to trust in you, to turn to you and to live in the assurance that you are ruling and we ask this in your name. Amen.